Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, everybody, or hello, everybody, wherever you are and whatever your time zone is. Um, my name is Jack Petranker. I'm a host uh, for National Books Network on the uh, channel Politics and Polemics. And today I'm going to be talking with Elena Landemore about her new book, Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century. So, Lena, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jack. Delighted to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, your background and how you came to write this book. So um, my background is uh, in philosophy initially. I was trained as a philosopher in France, um, but I also studied political science there. And then uh, around 2001, I had a chance to go on an exchange program with Harvard. And I decided to stay, so I enrolled in the PhD program, and then I started, uh, you know, looking around for a dissertation topic. And I had always been interested in the question of human choice. And at that point, I was uh, sort of exploring the question of collective choices. And so my interest turned to democracy because that's the way we uh, make collective choices in in, um, in modern times in many countries. And uh, and I was intrigued by an argument that I thought was underexplored at the time, uh, which is the argument from the wisdom of the multitude. I thought that was that had to be an obvious argument for democracy, but somehow I kept running into objections, and even the people who kind of like mentioned that argument did did so only like half-heartedly. Like like Aristotle, for example, sort of considers the argument and he, he sees some merit to it, but he's also dismissing it eventually. And um, and so I, I thought, oh, I'm going to explore that. And then I, I looked at former models like the, the you know, the Condorcet-Dre theorem, which is a one version of the argument that looks at the aggregative side of democratic decision making. And then I um, explored the more deliberative side, you know, through through figures like Habermas, um, uh, you know, who argue that that basically we. we there's something that happens in um, in deliberative settings where you can expect the um, forceless force of the better argument to triumph. And I, I, I thought that that sort of aligned again with this idea of uh, collective intelligence, the fact that we're smarter together than individually and, um, and that ultimately that might be the reason why we, we try to s- sort of distribute power somewhat equally, at least we, we should in, in, a, in democratic uh, settings. Yeah, so that, you know, that also reminds me, and this is the this is the opposite side of it. But um, Alexander Hamilton is a culture hero these days. But if I remember the quote correctly, he said, um, "The people are a great beast; they seldom judge or determine right." So I, I don't know. Did that come up as an issue? And you know, during the when the Constitution was being written, were there people who argued in favor of of um, you know, the, the wisdom of, of collective deliberation. You mean in Iceland? No, 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 in the U.S., in, in, uh, in the United oh. States. Um, um, so the, I think that the, in, in the U.S., the, uh, the debates around the, you know, the Constitution were uh, a lot more about how can we prevent the tyranny of the majority from destroying this beautiful you know, a uh, new regime we're creating. So um, there was a lot of demophobia, a lot of fear of the demos okay. sort of encoded in the text. And, and and I think it's not that surprising. I mean, this was the 18th century and uh, the local elites had been fed on the same sort of anti-democratic uh, diet as, uh, you know, the, the, the ancients. And, and so I... I I don't know that the argument from the wisdom of the multitude was that present then. It was kind of buried. It's, it's a, it, it's a long-existing argument, but I don't think it's been very influential. Uh, it, it was picked up, I guess, uh, in the 1960s by some social scientists, political scientists, who uh, formalized the Condorcet-Dre theorem, and then you had people who um, figured out you know, a series of emergent um, collective intelligence and things like that. I don't think it was very influential in the context of the American constitution. No. Yeah. So, so I know it came up in the, in the legal um, sphere. I think it maybe goes back to Brandeis who talked about the marketplace of ideas. 
um, which is somewhat the same argument. It's not quite the same. Yeah. I, I well, so I, I consider that I don't think it's the same argument. Um, the marketplace of ideas it's something that we it's an argument we trace typically to John Stuart Mill. He didn't use that phrase, but he, he basically theorizes something like that. He thinks that if we let people um, the freedom, if we give people the freedom to be themselves and pursue their own good and express their views um, in the competition of ideas in in this free market of ideas eventually truth will uh, go to the top, you know, like uh, the cream will rise to the top. And I think that there's um, uh, something analogical to the um, argument from the wisdom of the multitude, if you will, but it's really not um, about deliberation so much as a... a cancellation of mistakes. It's, it's, it's really... And it's a lot more decentralized. You don't have a, necessarily a, um, an engagement of people's arguments. It's just like a, a market competition, right? So it's a lot more decentralized. And I see it more as a, an argument in favor of a liberal society than in favor of a democratic society, per se. But at the same time, you might say, well, yes, but even a, a democratic society of equals where people deliberate and try to reach decisions in this collective uh, fashion would need to be premised on a liberal liberal background where there's a, a free market of ideas. And that's that's probably true. But I still think that analytically these arguments are distinct. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. So uh, another example I think of, I remember reading about a while ago, this is, this is taking it down to the lowest common denominator, I suppose. But if you have one of these jars that's filled with beans and you ask people to guess how many beans there are in the jar... Um, the the closest answer is going to be the one that is the average of all the guesses from different people. So that's closer to yeah. Yeah, that's closer. So that's uh, so so the argument from collective intelligence. You, you have it in two versions in a way. You have the deliberative version and then you have the ag- aggregative version. So the deliberative version, it's really like we exchange informations and so what's your best guess and why do you think that and what's your evidence and then we convince each other and we try to sort of collectively converge on, on the right answer. But for, for things like guessing the weight of an ox or, uh, or uh, the number of beans in, in a jar, uh, you don't need to exchange uh, information and, and deliberate and, and talk. You can just um, ask everybody to uh, write their best guess on a piece of paper and then you take the average of all the guesses and somehow it kind of works <laughs> i've tried that <laughs> on students um and and it works every time it's it's um, it's you know it's uh, it, it's 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 it looks magical but it really is the law of large numbers and and there's something to you know our judgment being relatively good uh with some noise and then when you when you take um multiple the, the, the more uh, guesses you have the more the sort of uh, noise cancels out and 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 our own, you know, sometimes we, we talk about biases as well, but, you know, the biases cancel out, and so you, you get closer to the, to the truth that way. Okay. So, so yeah, you, you write, I, I mean, um, um, the phrase you used that struck me was you said that um, democracy is the safest epistemic bet. Um, and I, I like that way of putting it. It's, it's like you're more likely to go right with democracy than with other forms of government. Is that a fair characterization? It's a fair characterization. I I, um, I think I got that idea of a fair, um, a sort of safer bet from from the Condorcet Jury theorem, which in a way shows that um, you know yes, democracy is a gamble, but if you compare it uh, with uh, less inclusive ways of making decision, it's a safer it's a safer gamble. You you've at least tried your best to include all the perspectives that may matter, so you're minimizing your chances of getting the wrong answer, if you will. Because I always talk about getting the right answer, but really you can look at it the other way, which to me is kind of symmetrical, that you're minimizing your the chances of, of getting it wrong. And I think that uh, regime forms like uh, oligarchies or autocracies that basically build uh, the decision-making process around the minds of very few people are more likely to have blind spots and uh, biases and, and all kinds of problems that uh, lead to bad governance and bad policy and laws. Yes. So, so um, I, you know, we've started with uh, the, epist- the epistemic question because you do really emphasize that in the book, but maybe we should back up and just say, what do you mean by open democracy? 
Um, so open democracy for me, it's a um, form of democracy that centers ordinary citizens as opposed to um, elected elites, if you will. It's really, I offer it as a, so if I put it in uh, pretentious terms, if you will, I, I would propose it as a parting shift. You know, we, we've, we've grown mm-hmm. accustomed to this um, idea of democracy as like structured by elections and periodic elections, and but mostly at the center of it, uh, we have a very tiny elite of, of rulers that are elected and that make decisions on our behalf. And we rotate them somewhat, but some of them stay in power for 20 years or longer. Uh, they, they, it's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a relatively tiny circle. And an open democracy is the idea that the legislative power in particular, the center of, of, uh, of power, should be open to all. Uh, in an inclusive and equal way so that anyone at some point, uh, a nurse, a gardener, uh, a student or a retired person, uh, an engineer, an astronaut, whatnot, can become uh, a legislator, an agenda setter for the community. And of course, not forever, because the idea that we we have to share that power equally and so we have to distribute it equally and that means we have to root it quite, um, you know, Quite a bit of uh, this, this this power, so that it's shared more more widely, um, and that sounds radical until you remember that actually that's what um, democracy meant for um, the ancients who invented it, right? I mean, in, in um, uh, or at least in the version that was invented in in uh, ancient Greece, where the political offices were distributed by lot, and not through elections. And then if you look at um, other forms of democracy that were invented around the world at various times, even before the, the Greeks, they, they, they were not uh, distributing power on the basis of elections. It was a, it was a, a lot more participatory than that. Right. So, so you, you actually, I mean, first you say you don't need elections. And then second, you say, in fact, elections are really somewhat anti-democratic, right? Well... Um, so if you, um, you know, uh, buy the argument made by Bernard Manin, who's, who's been like a very influential on this, um, elections are actually uh, two-faced, right? There's a face that's facing democracy, because in a way, we, you know, if, if you have a universal suffrage and you truly have one person, one vote, then it has some democratic credentials. But on the other hand, um, elections operate on a principle of distinction, which means that only the people who can distinguish themselves in the, or, or are distinguished in the eyes of their fellow citizens can really stand a chance of winning an election. And so typically they, they win because they are different in ways that are not, um, they have certain traits that are not widely distributed. They, they are charismatic, they are tall, they are uh, you know, they, they speak well, or they have money, or they have a lot of connections, and and that's how you win an election, right? Um, and that again means that inevitably, the people that are going to be in power are not going to be uh, like the people who elect them, right? They they're, they're going to be a, a group of people that has um, some shared traits that are not widely distributed in the population, and 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 that will lead to problems. And even if it doesn't lead to problems, it's still conceptually uh, not what we what I think we should mean by democracy right it's, it's a lot more oligarchic that way so the question is could we democratize an electoral system to the point where these distinctions are there but they don't really matter or they're minimized or something like that where we, we'd have a, a parliament that's truly multicolor and you know 50% women and men and and um, a lot more diverse than, than our parliaments currently are. Maybe, um, I think that's the hope of a lot of reformists who think that, well, if only we introduce proportional representation and we introduce quotas and and we sort of like uh, reached out to underrepresented communities so that they send their best people. But in the end, that would democratize the the process, but it, it still wouldn't make it democratic. I think I think Manon was right. It's it's just fundamentally something about human choice that will um, go to what's different and superior or or like unique, and in the end, 
a ton of people will be uh, excluded from access to political power. The people who, again, are shy, uh, don't speak well, uh, don't have the right accent, don't have enough money, because also you know, elections cost a lot, and, and perhaps we could fix that through public uh, campaign reforms, but I think there are, there are still some dimensions that you couldn't quite fix. So, so that's the idea. I think that you know, in the 18th century, we, we invented a form, a regime form that was actually not meant to be a democracy. It was a, what I call it a sort of liberal republican regime, which is truly a, a form of oligarchy with popular consent. And it's only much later, I mean, not, I mean, at least 50 years later, that we started to call it a democracy. You know, it, it was in around 1830 that all of a sudden, representative governments started being called democracy in the US and, and in France. And, and that name sort of caught um, uh, only around 1870 in, in Great Britain. So, you know, if you look back at the history, it was never meant to be a democracy. It was something else. It was a republic. It was a representative government. Oh. So, so that's interesting. What do you think happened in, in around 1830 to, to change that? Well, I'm reading a lot of dissertations trying to explain this, these changes, <laughs> and I'm not sure I've found the, the right answer, but the, 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 um, what's interesting is that there's a Canadian scholar named Hugo Bonin who says, well, we observe here a process of uh, domestication of uh, democracy, right? Democracy in 1789 in France, it's, it's, uh, it's a bad word, right? It's, uh, it's mob rule, same thing in the US. It's, it's, uh, it's something that you want to avoid at all costs. It's like direct mass uh, participation and it's scary and out of control. Um, somehow, years later, it's become the name of a society and a government. And I think in the US, the way I would explain it is that, you know, it's partly Tocqueville's fault, I guess, or responsibility. <laughs> he, he went to the US and then he he, he saw a society of equals as he, you know, he, he, I mean, uh, bracketing, of course, the slavery issue and all that, but he, he really thought that... Um, among the people who counted as citizens, he, he observed uh, a, an equality of condition that he had never seen before, and certainly not in Europe, right, where distinction and status were everything. And he thought, oh my God, that's, that's democracy, right? And I think he was probably right about the society, because the society was truly like, you know, a group of people who had migrated there and, and where distinctions didn't matter and... and um, among themselves, not outside of the group. And, and that's probably very close to what uh, we should mean by democracy. The problem is that when that group of people decided to give itself a constitution, they went for relatively elitist and oligarchic choices, right? They, there was a, an opposition to the federalist choices, which was the, the anti-federalist camp. And that camp was very much afraid that... Um, the sort of large constituencies and electoral system that uh, people like Madison had in mind would basically empower the notables, the rich and the connected and the, the, you know, the local aristocracy in some ways. And in fact, that's what Madison had in mind. He wanted a natural aristocracy of talents and virtue to be in charge. So the anti-federalists said, well, uh, we don't want that. We want the middle class to be in charge. And if we go your route, it's going to be the, you know, the natural aristocracy. So we want smaller constituencies. And, and that way we can make sure that craftsmen and farmers and people who have, uh, you know, less money less, and, and are really important to the community get go, go to power and, and are in charge. And of course, as we know, the Federalists won. And, and I think the legacy of those choices that, I mean, it's not the only reason, but Encoded in the DNA of, of the American so-called democracy, you have really elitist um, design, a very elitist design, counter-magitarian design, demophobic design. Right, right. No, I, that, that makes good sense to me. I, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't like to hear it or think of it that way, but that makes sense. But the, let me raise a question that just occurred to me as we're talking. The um, You talk about you know, a lot of credit, uh, democracy, which you know, you know, people are chosen by lot. But so I want to give an example that just, uh, you know, is, has, was in the news fairly recently um, when there was a march in, I don't remember right now, I think in Florida, was it? Um, where those, that couple um, stood out on their lawn waving guns at the, at the people who were protesting Black Lives Matter. 
And as a result, they got a, a lot of media attention. Um, and so now I believe the husband is running for the Senate. Well, you know, in a sense, you know, does the media play the role of a lottery? Like totally by accident, this person happens to get well-known, to become well-known, and suddenly he's in a position where he says, well, what do you know, I'm going to run for Senate. Well, no, I think the media absolutely do, does not play the role of a lottery. The media is drawn to crazy types. Is dra- the media is drawn to extreme, charismatic uh, you know, uh, types that can generate you know, clicks and, 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 and you know, views. I mean, that's what the media wants. And in fact, it's true too of um, what happened in the French context around the actually randomly selected citizens convention for climate. Uh, you know, this, this sort of democratic innovation that took place in 2019-21. And, uh, and, I, and I can talk more about it. But what really struck me is the role that the media played in, in uh, building a narrative around that randomly selected group of uh, uh, 150 people. Instead of developing new tools and new ways of approaching that object of, again, 150 randomly selected citizens with all kinds of types, they only applied the one method they know, which is, oh, we're going to look for the person who talks the most, who's the most visible during plenaries, who's the most aggressive and the most, you know, like, and so that's what they did. And so they interviewed mostly those types um, that, that are, in fact, electoral types. You know, they are the types who then, you know, get a taste of power, get a taste of public life in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the eyes of the media. And, and then they seek um, the same sort of kicks from, from g- campaigning and going into this electoral uh, system. So, for example, one of the most charismatic uh, citizen in the in the French Citizens Convention for Climate ended up with a book deal, and the book he published was called "I Citizen." So it was all about the I. It was all about the me, 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 as opposed to the collective we that this convention was trying to had tried to build, right? And so again, the the shy women, the the you know the the retired, uh, decent uh, former banker who didn't speak too much or didn't look for the limelight, totally ignored, not covered by the media. That's, I mean, it, it improved a little bit over the months, so I, I don't want to be completely unfair, and I also want to distinguish between uh, print and, and, uh, and TV media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, they, these are different and, and they have different uh, ethical sort of rules and but no, I think the media needs to learn how to cover uh, the life of ordinary citizens and how to portray them in, you know, differently than they, they're, they're used to covering um, political types. Okay, that's interesting. I, I certainly understand what you're saying. Um, and I suppose there has been a little bit of a movement. So, so for instance, I, I noticed that, you know, during the pandemic, um, the New York Times and its obituary section started covering, in effect, random people. I mean, obviously, they were not random. Obviously, somehow, they made connection with them. But is that going more in the direction that, that you are thinking of? Yes, and actually, I've noticed that too, and I think that's a good thing. You know, democracy, you know, it's often described by, um, uh, you know, it's described by somebody like John Dewey, for example, as a way of life. It's not just about institutions. It's really about the values that uh, a people shares and uh it's also what Tocqueville said you know it's it's about a certain ethos certain way of relating to each other the kind of things we're interested in and i feel like there's a sort of oligarchic plutocratic ethos in the media which um the new york times was kind of guilty of you know like in the way they covered certain types of weddings and and certain type of real estate and this fascination for the rich and powerful and connected and, and the gossips around that and i think the more they try to diversify the people they put in those articles and columns and the more it's moving a little bit towards the the more egalitarian sort of ethos where everybody's interesting. Everybody's got a story. Uh, not just because you're wearing Louboutins or, or going to some fancy party or living in the right neighborhood. Everybody deserves uh, to be paid attention to. And, and, and even when you look at Netflix and all these you know, reality TV shows. So I think 
the, the focus has been initially and still is actually on, on crazy types, on people that actually, I don't know, I don't know anybody like that, but they're really f- sort of fun to watch because they're, they're extreme and they're, they're insane and they, and they do, you know, uh, entertaining things. But actually, I also think that there are really good stories to be told around ordinary people. It's just that, you know, it's, it's so far not done very well. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I remember an old comedy routine where somebody sings a song about a train that made this desperate race to get there on time, and it got there on time. And, <laughs> and then, he, then he, says, he says, nobody thinks about it very much. That's so true. Like, <laughs> So I don't know. Maybe it is a question. Yeah. Well, the same yeah. way that that uh, yeah. I don't know, Switzerland is rarely in the news because right. it's a it's a country that that runs on time, that that functions, and where people are actually very happy with our institutions. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, are, we are we are we are learning a lot more about all the countries where things are not going well, and maybe that's human nature. We're drawn to drama. Right. So so I suppose that suggests that this is kind of an uphill. Road that you're, um, or row uh, that you're trying to to uh, follow here, that because people do sort of want to seek out, however they're created, and in our culture they're created very differently from in the past, but they do want to seek out elites, uh, and and are most interested in following them. So, is there anything to be done about that? Well, I think uh, you know you're right that it's an appeal thing, uh, but. Not only, I think there's a wisdom from, from where we are to get there, to get to a democratic ethos. It's, it's an uphill battle because we have to go against our uh, instincts or, or the thing that we think uh, is the right thing to do because everybody else is doing it, which is to seek recognition and to, to try to socialize in the right circles and get our school in a private school where they're going to get the connection they need to get the best job and this and that. But the idea would be to create a society where from an early age on, you're sort of uh, encouraged to think differently about life, not as a competition, but as a collaboration. Uh, and everybody wants recognition. And I'm sure this, this is not something, you know, that we need to eradicate, but this is something we need to channel. And, and uh, people should seek recognition and, and compete in certain fields. But in politics, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about... Um, you know, trying to solve problems together and, and trying to build a better for our children. And and sure, it's going to be competitive in some ways, but the the, the sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the partisan ethos, the electoral ethos, I'm not sure is, uh, is conducive to the right kind of lawmaking and problem solving and policy making. That's my, my sense. And, 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 and I'm not saying that I know how to get there, but I think starting early... Uh, <laughs> with with you know children's education uh, would be a way to to at least give people a sense of what's possible. It doesn't have to be this way. We're free to create a different set of institutions, a different world, a different a different society. Yes, and it always seems as though in the end it comes down to education, doesn't it? It's, I mean, you absolutely. Start young. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think ignorance is the first uh, obstacle. Um, you know the, the the lack of imagination that a lot of people have. I think is because it, one, they don't have time to think about what could be. They're just kind of stuck with the status quo and think things have been this way forever, so we can't imagine better. And it's it's lack of perspective on other countries, other uh, periods of history, other civilizations, other people. If, if we educate people to the, to the rich diversity of, of uh, ways of organizing societies, I think we could pick and choose what's, what works for us instead of keeping, you know, repeating and maintaining the status quo. So, so that maybe is a good segue into a, a question I wanted to raise from the book. Uh, you basically say America is not the best model for, for making this happen, uh, that you would look for change to come. Uh, at the margins, you say, in small countries or maybe at the level of cities or regions. Um, can you say something about that? Well, I don't think that's particularly controversial. I think change uh, really comes from the mainstream, sort of like the mainstream, large, big organizations that are stuck in their ways and, and, and dominate the market. So they think that they've got it figured out. And 
Um, so, you know, it's not a surprise that um, institutional design that was creative and and interesting came from a small country like Iceland. You know, it's 3,000, 20,000 <laughs> citizens, something like that. Um, because they went through a huge crisis and they, they are kind of a, you know, they don't matter enough on the, on the sort of larger geo- geopolitical map that they uh, can't afford to take some risks. So they did and they tried this um, uh, participatory constitutional process uh, that sort of broke new ground and, and was very inspiring for a lot of people around the world. And same thing with Ireland. It's a smallish country, it's five, five million uh, people where they uh, managed to change the constitution on, on two important questions, uh, marriage equality and um, abortion, via uh, citizens' assemblies of 99 randomly selected citizens. I mean, the first, the first instance, it was actually a, a hybrid um, assembly where a third of the participants were actually politicians. But in the second case, in 2016, it was a pure random sample. And they, these assemblies uh, deliberated about these, you know, very controversial issues in Ireland, you know, uh, Catholic country. And they made the recommendation to uh, legalize uh, uh, marriage for all, to decriminalize abortion, and their proposals were put by parliament to a referendum. And in, in each case, the, the, the population followed the recommendations of the of the citizens' assembly. So this is, this, you know, a successful example that's now been replicated in France, where we just had this uh, citizens' convention for climate with a sample of 150 randomly selected citizens who made recommendations about climate change and how to fight it in, in France. And you have, as I said, it's kind of like the prediction that cities would be the place where things happen is actually turning out to be true because... Uh, you uh, now have Brussels and Paris looking into ways to uh, create their own local um, citizens' assemblies. So I was just on a call recently with uh, people from the, the, the you know, the, the, the mayor in Paris, and they want to create a so-called uh, Parisians' assembly of randomly selected citizens to help them with, um, you know, their policy-making process. They want them to draft bills. I mean, it's really interesting. Things are are moving uh, quite fast in some in some cases. Grenoble also in the south of France is, is doing something. Um, um, I, I know in the U.S. right now it doesn't look like uh, so many things are happening, but the, the, the Washington State did a, um, a convention for climate as well uh, in January. So it's, it's, it's happening under the radar. And in terms of the numbers, they're pretty impressive actually because when you put together all the experiments with deliberative mini-publics in the last 20 years, um, a recent OECD report has, has, you know, estimates that there are around 289 of them. So we don't talk about it in the, you know, in, in the media, and it's not something that TV spenders cover either, but, but it's, it's happening. That's interesting. So, so, so it's not <laughs> the situation is not as dire as I as I might have thought. In other words, I would imagine some people might look at your book and say, "Well, this is nice theory, but but you know, it's never going to happen." But you're saying, "No, in fact, it is happening." Well, I would have agreed with the critics five years ago, but uh-huh. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's we live in really strange times, and things are changing really fast. And uh, I think that the pandemic was like a sort of a final nail in the coffin of, of this pre-2008 era where there was no alternative to anything, to neoliberalism, to electoral democracy, to mass incarceration. To, to it, It's just over. This area is over. Now, I would say since 2008, even more so since 2016, you know, with Brexit and, Trump and the Trump election, and even more so since the pandemic, all the political options are wide open. We're talking about prison abolition, we're talking about student debt cancellation, we're talking about, um, you know, uh, democratic legislatures like I do, Um, we're talking about uh, inflation again, we're talking about uh, Keynesianism, I mean, it's all all over the place now, there's a sort of conceptual space that has opened up 
where we can really have an interesting conversation at this point. So yes, my book was probably very utopian, um, you know, seven, eight years ago. And now it's, it's starting to look like I'm barely ahead of, of uh, I mean, somewhat ahead of the curve of what's coming, at least in some area. The worry, though, is that, you know, what's being tried on the ground so far, or, you know, in some cases could be looked at as a participatory washing, you know, desperate attempts by existing systems to um, protect themselves from angry masses by looking like they're consulting and listening and doing some participatory experiments. Mm -hmm. The real question is, will these experiments matter? Will they make a difference? And here, I have to say, the record uh, is is a bit mixed because apart from um, the Irish case where you had a really clear causal impact of the citizens' assemblies on on the constitutional uh, reform, Iceland sort of failed. Um, the French case is a semi-failure because, yes, the process went well and, and the, the citizens came of these conventions came as close as one can get to producing actual legislation, uh, in my view. But in the end, what, what Parliament made of their proposals, because constitutionally only Parliament could turn their proposals into actual law, is very disappointing, right? They, they, they came up with extremely bold proposals, for example, uh, mandatory retrofitting of all houses in, in France. Uh, and the government didn't follow up on, 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 the most, on the boldest recommendations that would have really helped curb greenhouse gas emissions in France. So, so I'm waiting to see um, more actual um, commitment on the part of uh, the power that be you know that the recommendations of these these uh, mini publics will actually be implemented so that, that, that we'll see we'll see yeah yeah so actually you know there have been calls in in there have been calls in this country um, over the years for a new constitutional convention and and a lot of people, I think react to that with a certain amount of, of fear because, you know, there's a, I guess the sense is that the people who would participate in that, whether they were self selected, maybe if they were selected by lottery, that might make a real difference. But anyway, that they would be intent on doing things that would undermine some of the fundamental representative or even democratic principles of the country. You know, that because there's been such a hard turn toward the right among a certain part of the, of the, population in the United States, that you would end up making things much worse. Uh, do you think that the right answer to that is, no, no, if, if you really do select people randomly, you can, be tr- you can trust that? I, I think fear is, uh, is, the right, is the wrong premise. I mean, it, it, I see it everywhere, but I think that it's, it's also what made the American Constitution so stuck uh, and conducive to so much inertia. Um, it's so much fear, so much fear of ordinary citizens, so much fear of the of the masses, right? And yes, there is a history that, that justifies some of those fears, but I think if you design the constitutional process the right way, you should be able to... You, you can't... You know, it's not absolutely foolproof. Of course, I don't think any process is, but from what I've observed, um, if you design your, your process well, people can be turned into reasonable uh, citizens who deliberate with respect with each other and, and build constructively. Um, if you don't, I mean, if you claim to be a Democrat and you don't have this basic trust in the decency and competence of the ordinary citizen, then you're not coherent. Then you have to face the fact that you're actually um, an aristocrat who thinks that only certain people should be allowed to think and, 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 and rule. And that's fine, but at least let's be honest with our actual beliefs, right? Um, so if we're if we want to be consistent and, and, and we, we claim to be Democrats, then we have to trust that a properly designed process involving randomly selected citizens can yield good outcomes. And frankly, at this point, I think it's, again, ignorance, because I've just told you that we have 289 cases of, of uh, you know, mini-publics of some sort all over countries in the OECD. 
So just take a look at those and see for yourself. Take part in a, in a, in, if you can't, in a, as an observer in some of these experiments. Read, uh, learn about these processes. I think, I, I think that's the only way to change minds anyway. I, I think I, you can read my book, but really <laughs> the only way to change your, somebody's mind is to expose them to uh, the reality of a random sample of citizens. And it is mind-blowing. It's not what you think. The problem is like we, we're, we're built in such a way that we have these biases. We, we, I tell you, ordinary citizen, you think, oh my God, um, you know, stupid voters that are racist, this and that. No, average voters are, uh, sorry, not voters, average citizens are, if you take a random sample that's large enough, you get a really diverse group. And you'll have some people who are crazy, but it's actually a minority. And they can't take over a large uh, sample. They can scream. They, they, they just get ignored. And the others will talk calmly and, and exchange. And again, if you have the right design, because the thing is, you can't just throw people in a room and expect things to go well. You have to um, build a deliberative assembly where you have facilitators and uh, an agenda and, and some rules and uh, some guidelines about how to conduct the whole thing. And, and that's what. Um, democratic theorists are working on at the moment, like figuring out what works and what doesn't in, in the design of these assemblies. So that so, means it's costly too, because, you know, it doesn't come cheap. You, you the, the French convention costs around 6 million euros. But that's the cost of democracy and we should start investing in it. Right. Well, in the grand scheme of things, I, 6 million euros doesn't sound like it's Well, exactly, much. right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you look at the cost of elections... For example, where we learn nothing, we were just being, you know, brainwashed and, and exposed to all kinds of propaganda. And at the end of the day, we don't even know what's true. So I think that for the same amount of money, you could you could uh, set up a very large number of, of uh, deliberative sort of mini publics where people would actually learn things and educate each other. That's actually the most important thing. They educate each other because you can't make a people better than it already is or or, or isn't. But once you put them in a room together and, and they take each other seriously and they listen, they learn. They learn about themselves. They learn about others. They learn about the proper ethos of these kind of uh, conversations and how to be inclusive and how to not make racist jokes and how to calm down when they get upset. And, and it's, it's an education to be part of something like this. So, so that would be a kind of secondary benefit is people would learn by participating. Maybe it's not secondary, but it's another benefit. It's a huge benefit. And in fact, there's no other way. You can't wait until people are, oh, you know, wise to finally give them power. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, if you wait for people to have the proper education to be allowed to vote, then they never will. We, we know historically education, you know, people became educated once they were given the votes because then they voted to give themselves an education. And that's, that's just the reality of um, how it works. Otherwise... Um, there's always this, you know, incentives to keep the masses down and, and just not educate them, keep power for oneself. So, so how would this intersect with political parties? So political parties, um, you know, if you don't have elections, then they don't play a role in, in uh, uh, capturing access to power, right? But I could see a role for them in an open democracy where there are no elections, but there are referenda and moments of, of mass voting where people vote on issues, not on people. Um, they could play a role in, in uh, shaping the conversation and shaping the debates and informing the debate. They would be like um, think tanks, if you want, or associations who uh, contribute certain, certain views. And So I think there are Absolutely unavoidable in some ways, um, because there will always be um, interest groups and and uh, ideological platforms and, and people who get together to to f to formulate a vision. But I don't know that they should be the machines that they currently are machines to conquer power, um, as opposed to you know places where people think and come up with. Um, with ideas that then can be entered into a, the deliberative process of a mini-public, for example, or the deliberative process of the nation as it's about to cast a vote on some very important issue that a mini-public put to them or that they decided to, 
put to themselves uh, if, if they are going to use things like initiatives and you know bottom-up referenda basically so so I, I don't know I uh, parties it's really a, a difficult question for me I say it in the book I, it's the limit of my imagination really to imagine a, a democracy without parties but it all depends on what we mean by party if by party we mean these groups that uh, just aim to you know, win elections, then they couldn't, they couldn't necessarily, I mean, by definition, they wouldn't be in a, in a non-electoral open democracy. But if we define them as associations of the like-minded, uh, then of course they would still be there. And they would reintroduce some of the problems too. I mean, of course, if they are funded and they have a way to disproportionately influence the debate, you know, in, in proportion to the money they receive, then some of the problem of electoral democracy will reemerge. But but I do think that it's it's it would still be an improvement that power is in the hands of of a, a large random sample rather than people who are sent to power via elections. Mm-hmm. So so you do in what you were saying just now you, you you do see a place at some point for voting on issues. Yes, yes, voting on yeah. issues. Well, that's my first principle, right? The participation rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the first principle of an open democracy, and it's crucial. It's uh, it's you know it's the idea that to the extent that people want to participate they should be able to um, so representation is is important and key and unavoidable but um, first of all we need to let people decide whether they want to make decisions on things directly or let let uh, representatives decide for them and 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 how frequently they want to vote and on what issues and they they have to be able to influence the agenda of the representatives as well. So there, I think the inspiration is um, something like Switzerland, where you know people vote on referendum in referendums at least three to four times a year. Um, and they get this education we were just talking about. They, they read the news, they talk to each other, they, they inform themselves, they, they feel a responsibility to vote. I mean, participation rates are actually not that great, but... Uh, you know, I think it's around 50% in elections and, and, and referenda. But it's so frequent that uh, the benefits are there constantly, constantly renewed and, and uh, reinforced. Okay. So I, 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 can, <laughs> I, I have no experience with Switzerland or, or really basically with any other country in the United States. So, But, you know, you described the possibility well, I think, of, of doing it other ways. And then there are the local level situations. Actually, I wanted to bring up an example with you, which I don't think is, you know, anything like your ideal type, but it's just I've been thinking about it in, in connection with your book. So um, over the last year, I've been attending some meetings of a, uh, an agency, a board. Um, it's actually called the Design Review Commission. Uh, here in I live here in Berkeley, and this has had to do with reviewing the design of buildings that are be, are proposed to be built. And so I was involved with a project like that. And um, the people who serve on this are self-selected. We haven't talked about that part of it yet, but um, but they're you know they're also they're people with credentials. I, I don't really know exactly how they're picked, um, but you know they're architects basically. They're they they have the expertise in what it means to design a building, but they are volunteers, they're self-serving, self-selected, um, and, and then they have their hearings, and the hearings are open to the public, um, and people show up for those hearings and, and give their opinions on things. Um, I, I see that there are limits in that, but maybe you could just take that example and say, how does that fit into the model, you know, what, what parts of it seem connected and what parts of it seem like they're not quite there yet? So um, where it's connected to the idea of an open democracy is that if it's self-selected, then anyone can join based on willingness, basically. And that's, that's good. Uh, it's not closed to people who want to join. It's, uh, it's accessible from what you describe. So that's a good thing. Uh, what's not so good, and that's a problem that I have with self-selected processes in general, is that, um, well, if you have self-selection, you have bias. You have, you know, only the people who have time, who have uh, strong preferences, um, 
who uh, have the energy, the confidence, etc., to show up. And that means you won't have all the voices that actually uh, probably should matter. You will have people who don't have time and can come, even if their interests are deeply affected by the design you're talking about. So I think that self-selected processes, you know, in, in ancient Greece, they were used as well. Like the, the people's assembly was based on self-selection. You could enter the, the people's assembly up to capacity. Like at, at one point it was too full and so you couldn't enter anymore, but it was based on just willingness to, to just go and join. Um, but it was a large percentage of the overall population. It was 6,000 people on a population of 30,000 citizens or something like that. So I, I guess it was somewhat representative anyway. Um, whereas the, the processes you're talking about, um, it's really, so you're describing architects and people with strong preferences. I think they should, in order to improve the, the, the process, they should try to also consult a random sample of the relevant population because it's not, it's not enough to just um, make yourself available to people so that, oh, they, we just have had these office hours and they can show up and we just have a website and they can leave their opinions and their suggestions on the website. You have to reach out to people and, and, and one way to do that is to, you know, bring them in a, in a, in, in these in this mini publics, which themselves are actually um, also suffer from, from some amount of self-selection because, of course, not everybody agrees to join. But the yeah. difference is that in, in mini publics that are well-designed, you, you really try hard to reach out uh, people who would not necessarily come otherwise. You, you call them multiple times, you pro- and, and, of course, you pay them. It's a huge, huge uh, incentive for some people. Because otherwise, it's you know they, they, they can't even afford the bus or something. So you, you have to pay for their time, for their expenses, traveling back and forth between you know, their, the place they live and these mini public uh, meetings. Uh, you have to pay for the daycare if they have young children, um, things like that. That that's where you really reach out and you make sure you have a represent a somewhat representative sample, and that makes the whole process truly accessible and, and open in my sense. Okay, that, that's helpful. Thank you. So I, you did some consulting in Iceland, right? Could you say something about what that was like? What, what were the uh, issues you were working with and how, what did you learn? Right, so that, that wasn't in Iceland. It was in Finland. Oh, um, I'm sorry. It's a slightly larger country. Um, uh, so that was uh, an exercise in uh, uh, crowdsourced policymaking where the government of Finland didn't know how to address an issue that had uh, sort of emerged over the years, the issue of uh, snowmobiles. There were too many of them, uh, and they were damaging, uh, you know, trees and and scaring animals and and, uh, polluting and just driving too fast in in ways that endangered other, other people. So they wanted to create some new regulations and they couldn't, the, the, there were too many lobbies fighting back in, in parliament. So they decided to try a crowdsource process. And with my uh, colleague, Tanya Itamoto, who is herself a Finnish, we designed a, a platform, a crowdsourcing platform where we uh, tried to reach out to people and, and got their feedback on, on various uh, uh, ideas and questions. And so there were several phases. There was um, an, uh, no, first a sort of problem identification phase where we ask, okay, what are the problems with the law? What are the problems that need to be addressed? Then uh, ID generation where they were proposing their own solutions. And, and then finally, an evaluation phase where we asked this particular crowd to, um, to uh, rank the proposals by others uh, so that, you know, they, we ended up with a ranking of like the, the best solutions according to this particular group. But I have to say, it was really, it was, um, it basically confirms what I just said, which is that on the one hand, it's great because you have all these people who come and are eager to participate and have a lot of information to share. But on the other hand, they are are a really unrepresentative sample. I mean, our our participants were like 90% male, uh, very educated, uh, very libertarian in their political leanings. And so, you had the perspective of the mother of young children who drive too fast on the snowmobiles that was not really represented, for example. You you had the 
a small number of property owners who felt uh, threatened by all these um, machines and and the, and the way they damage our trees or their fences. And so, so you can't. I don't think self selection uh, is a good way to distribute political decision making power. It's it's a good way to invite people and get information, which is crucial to the deliberation process. But when it comes to the decision phase, it's important that it's not the self-selected group that decides because they're too unrepresentative, typically. And, and, and then there's the whole issue of people who are very strongly invested in one side or the other. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, you do say that if you had groups like this, there might have to be some some rules to sort of safeguard them from influence by lobbyists and and other interest well, groups. Yes, so, so so what, and I think that's what Audrey Tang in uh, in Taiwan also does. She says that all our processes seem to be based on self-selection. She doesn't seem to be to use random selection. Um, but as she says, numbers um, of likes do not really matter. Uh, meaning, what matters is that is the ideas, and 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 they are sort of treated equally, uh, regardless of. I mean. It's not entirely true because they, they, they track a sort of rough consensus in the population. So they do care about how many people are behind a particular solution or position, but they, they try not to um, let lobbyists or interest groups sort of game the system by by clicking a million times on the same proposal or or pushing, you know, like or, or doing this thing that skew the the analysis. Um, and you can do that because it, when it's done online, you have a very clear sense of where the ideas are coming from and, and you can see visually how they they aggregate in certain you know corners of your ID map and and you can pay attention to the ones that are uh, you know uh, kind of unique and uh, and uh, not liked as much perhaps but that that bring really something to the table and are interesting so so yeah you also talk about liquid representation maybe you could just say something about that quickly um, so, yes, so liquid representation, I sort of coined that phrase after the liquid democracy uh, concept, which, so liquid democracy, it's a system in which anyone can either vote directly on, on the issues at stake or delegate their votes to anyone they want. So it could be really anyone, provided that person accepts, uh, of course, um, and the in some ways, it's a democratization of um, electoral representation because what's happening in electoral representation is that the electorate really doesn't have much of a choice of candidates, right? They, once the candidates have been declared, you can only vote for those, right? So you can choose your representative among a very limited number of people. In liquid democracy, you can choose anyone. So that means the parliament could have potentially 1 million representatives or, or just 100, or it, it could vary from issue to issue. Um, and in liquid democracy, you can also recall your votes uh, at any time. So if, you, if you're not happy with your representative anymore, your liquid representative, you can recall them and, and get your vote back and vote directly on the issue. And that sounds really strange and, and perhaps even dangerous. Uh, it's been tried already in certain parties in Europe, the Demo-X party in Sweden, certain, I think the Pirate Party in Germany, uh, I think Podemos in Spain also tried it somewhat uh, to, to generate internal policy platforms. And, and I mean, I, I, I'm a bit skeptical, I have to say, but um, I also admit that uh, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, a, it's an authentic democratization of the electoral representation model. In practice, I just I just don't know how it really works. I you know you can't really have a, a parliament of millions of representatives. Uh, so so it's more science fiction for me at this point. Uh, but I I, th- <laughs> I still think conceptually it's really interesting. Okay, okay. Um, so I, we're we're pretty much at the end of our time. So let me let me ask you a question that I hope is a kind of general question. It seems to me that. Um, for this kind of change, you really have to persuade people. I'm, I'm trying to find the right verb, not convince, maybe persuade is still too strong. But, but people have to care about how their democracy is run. And, and certainly there's some inducement in the sense that at least polls here in the United States show that people are not at all happy with the way the government works. So it seems like there's an opening. Uh, do, but what, what do you think would have to happen for 
for people to really get behind reforms, whether they're exactly these reforms or Right. Well, par- paradoxically, I don't think we'll get to open democracy without parties because we need yeah. a group of very motivated people to campaign around some of those ideas. Um, I think with social media and, and, you know, the variety of ideas these days, it's much easier to to communicate. But I, you, you, nothing will replace the sort of uh, activism and, and on-the-ground person-to-person sort of you know, persuasion effort that you're, you know, talking about. Um, and I, I think here the example is perhaps what happened with the Bernie Sanders, you know, democratic socialism platform. I mean, 20 years ago, socialism was still a terrible world in, in, a, in, in the U.S. It, it meant communism, it meant centrally planned economies, it meant, you know, it meant... You know, Soviet Union, gray, bleak uh, uh, lifestyle, or something like that. Uh, and now it means Denmark. It means uh, you know universal healthcare and uh, free education, and and people are not. I mean, the younger generation is definitely not afraid of that. They they want it. So I think that might the same might could happen for something like uh, democratic legislatures or legislatures by lot, as um, some theorists call them. I mean, and not necessarily as a replacement of elected legislatures, because I think that there are, there are also hybrid models that are worth uh, looking at and that are much more plausible in the short term. But someone needs to, to be, you know, marketing that idea and, and, and uh, convincing per- people one person at a time. So I'm pretty confident that this can happen quite quickly, because if I look back uh, in 2008, when I started writing... When I, start, when I was finishing, actually, my, my, my dissertation on, that, on the topic of you know, epistemic democracy and, and in part, uh, randomly selected uh, legislatures, this was completely fringe. I mean, I was a sort of a, you know, outlier in my, in my department back then. And then a few years later, in 2016, I went to a conference you know, for political scientists, APSA it's called, in Philadelphia. And one of the members of the political theory establishment, uh, I'm not going to mention him, but he was, he was you know, classic liberal, classic Rosian liberal, was waving this uh, book by David van Rebroek, who is a, a Belgium uh, uh, activist and, uh, and journalist, called Against Elections, The Case for Democracy. Uh, with the argument for democracy. And it's basically a plea to introduce some uh, lotocratic elements into our electoral systems. So that, at that point, I thought, wow, interesting. So the, the, the sort of like political theory establishment is now making fun of that, of that kind of ideas. But sure enough, if you start making fun of something, you, you take it seriously too on some level. And, and, uh, and I think we're at the state where it's now being taken seriously, which also means it's going to be pushed back against because it's this is threatening to a number of its interests and uh you know and and statu quo beneficiaries but it's also it also means that that we're on the verge of of um maybe not going mainstream but at least being part of the conversation and i, and I see it in the publications that are coming out in in the articles and the, the very fact that you're asking me to be on this podcast on this podcast i mean the, the, you know, and I've been on some other mainstream outlets like that, and I, I just think it's really interesting um, how ideas spread very quickly these days. That's absolutely true. So let me ask you, um, how are you going to go on with this? Are you continuing on with these themes and concerns, or what are your plans for the future? What are you? Oh, uh, absolutely. On? I uh, so I'm right now. I'm finishing an article on the French Citizens Convention for Climate, where I try to. Um, show that citizens actually can write the law, which is even I is, even I didn't quite believe it to be honest. <laughs> I my book, if you read it carefully, you know it. What do I say? I say, well, they can set the agenda. They can perhaps legislate on some very defined, well defined issues or something like that. But I don't go into well. We need a. I mean, at, at least I felt like I, I I wasn't that bold actually in that book. But since then, following the the until the end, the, the Citizens' Assembly for Climate, I, I, just, I just see no reason not to entrust these um, citizens with legislative powers, actually. So that's one, one article. The other uh, project I have is to turn to workplace democracy. 
Because another <laughs> area where my views have sort of radicalized is really uh, workplace democracy. I, I, I think uh, that's currently the frontier where that we where we need to push um, for further democratization. It's really a place of alienation and injustice, and this pandemic has, you know, if anything, pulled the curtain on on the kind of. Uh, Injustices and alienation that takes place there. We we call these the workers essential, and especially the ones that do the the, the, the you know the some of the worst jobs, uh, and and yet we don't treat them better. We don't we didn't increase their salaries. We don't give them more rights. Um, so I think we need to rethink the governance of companies and firms and and generally organizations. I, I would include also universities, uh, you know, all kinds of places where human relationships can become abusive and domineering. Um, I think we need to sort of see how far we can take the, the principles of uh, open democracy there as well. That's, that's my belief. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that, those sound like really interesting areas to pursue. So I'll be, I'll be curious to see how that goes. Um, we're going to stop there, but um, Elena Landemore, thank you so much. Uh, I do look forward to seeing what you do next but I appreciate the time that you've taken and it's been a lot of fun talking about it. Thank you, Jack. It was fun for me too. Thank you so much.